Have you ever had the experience, and I, I remember, you know, I really am not a big fan of my own birthday parties. Anybody agree with that? The men's hands go up and the women's say, no, more parties. But there's times, you know, that you think you know what's going on. Matter of fact, uh, some of us even think we're still in control, no matter what's going on. And then all of a sudden you come to this revelation that I didn't have a clue what was going on, and my wife knew exactly what was going on. I remember one birthday party, I, I, a surprise party. I was totally fooled, totally fooled. I thought we were just going to go out and do the date thing and have a birthday dinner. Walk in, and of course there's a bunch of people and friends, and you know, you're first of all embarrassed, and a little bit, you look at your wife and you go, you something or other. Because I thought I knew what was happening. I thought I was in control. Well, we sat down and we're, good, we're having the party and it's finally time for the cake. And good old Neater gives me the knife. So I'm back in control. I have the knife to cut the cake. So I start cutting the cake over here and I can't cut the cake. Because she'd put frosting on top of a great big sponge. <laughs> Yeah, she may look sweet. She's not. <laughs> she is devious. I was so stupid, I fell for it again. She gave me the knife and another one, and I cut into a great big raw potato. <laughs> Frosting was good. My point is, sometimes when we think we know what's going on, we think we're in control. The reality is, we're not. And that's what I thought about even this morning when Brian introduced that first song. Satan thought he had things under control. When Jesus went to the cross, you know, Satan, if, and I'm not going to go through it all, but if you remember in Scripture many times where Jesus was being threatened and he just kind of did the magic act and vanished and walked through the crowd and all these different times, he was safe. This time Satan thought he had it. When Jesus hung on the cross, you can, I can only imagine the, the thoughts of victory that were going through his head. All the demons dancing around the cross, invisible to the natural eye, because they thought they'd won. But little did they know that God was fulfilling his plan that had been established before the foundations of the world. The reality was, Satan could do nothing unless God allowed him to. And everything that was being accomplished was happening perfectly according to his purpose in his plan of redemption. Jesus had to be a sacrifice, the sacrifice. He was the only sinless sacrifice. He was the only one that could pay the price for our sins because he had none of his own. We talked about his body and his blood as we received communion. When Jesus said those words, it is finished, he wasn't just referring to taking his last breath. What he was really saying was the plan of the fathers for redemption is completed. Mankind has been redeemed, purchased with the blood of Jesus on that cross. It was finished. And some people look at that whole scene and they think, how could a loving God, Father, send His Son to die on a cross in this horrible, horrible way? How could that possibly happen? The reality is, we sometimes only focus on one attribute or a few characteristics of God. But He is a perfectly just God. 
He had established from the foundations of the world the penalty for sin is death. Someone had to die. Even though his justice appears like this terrible thing to the natural mind, we don't understand or we often miss that was being demonstrated there was an unbelievable act of mercy at the very same time. God's justice and his mercy. His mercy, how? How can I say that? Because if Jesus hadn't had to die on that cross in our place, every single one of us deserved to die for our sins. The punishment he took was our punishment. But instead, this merciful God sent his son to satisfy his justice that we might be redeemed. And when we're looking at Revelation, as I've said before, as we're going through this, because his judgment is so severe and is so harsh, but it's perfectly just. And in it is a demonstration of his mercy, even as we continue through where we left off a couple of weeks ago. We're going to see in Revelation, we're going to, if you're opening, if you have your Bibles, we're going to look in Revelation chapter 16. The title of my message this morning is, It is Done. Sounds a lot like Jesus on the cross saying, It is finished. It is done. Last, two weeks ago, the last time we talked about Revelation, we looked at the first five bowls of judgment. The bowl symbolizing his judgment being poured out. A bowl being used is something you can dump out quickly, empty quickly. We've looked at the seven seals being opened with the judgments of God, and out of the seventh seal came the seven trumpets. Out of the seventh trumpet came these seven bowls. Along the way, the judgment has been horrible. It's been his wrath being poured out. But in these last two vials, these last two bowls, it's the harshest judgment yet. And one of the things I always remind myself of, and I want to remind us again, this is not a science fiction story. This is a prophetic picture, a prophetic dream given by God to John on the island of Patmos of what is literally going to happen in the future. And as I've said, the symbolism can be hard to figure out sometimes. Some of the positions I take, many others disagree with. They take different positions. And that's okay. But what the results are of those symbols is usually no doubt. And today it's no different these bowls that are being poured out, what they contain in terms of the judgment and wrath of God should put the fear of God in all of us as we look at these. So two weeks ago, the first five, we looked at the first bowl. with It said, Lotham and malignant sores upon the people. Lotham, malignant sores. Nothing they could do anything about. And maybe we need to just remind ourselves, for the first three and a half years of the tribulation, you know, the, the, the peace, the prosperity, the Antichrist was li- lying and deceiving. By the middle of the tribulation, things were going bad and his real colors were getting uh, revealed. And God's judgment was being poured out. And not only that, God's judgment being poured out, but even the nations that were embracing this three and a half year concept of peace are beginning to fight against one another too. So the times that they're living in are terrible. And then comes the judgment of God. 
The second one, it says the bowl was poured into the sea and the sea became like blood. And this time, everything in the sea died. Everything. Can you imagine the stench? It'd be worldwide. The third bowl was poured out and this time, it wasn't just the sea. This time, the rivers and the springs were turned to blood. All the fresh water was turned to blood. And in this, God was declared righteous. You may remember earlier in Revelation when the martyred saints under the throne were crying out to God, When, O God, when will you revenge, get the revenge, avenge our death? Well, it's happening. He is declared righteous. In verse 7 it says, And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord the God, the Almighty, the true and righteous are thy judgments. Why? Because this is exactly what they did to his people. And then the fourth one was poured out on the sun and somehow or other the temperature was turned up. It was more intense heat and it says man was scorched from the sun. You couldn't get away from it. And then the fifth one was poured out, on the, it said on the throne of the beast and on his kingdom and it says it became totally dark. And the really vivid picture is they were gnawing their tongues in this pitch black darkness because of the intensity of the pain that they were going through. And we need to also remind ourselves that it looks like, especially with the bowls, they were poured out one after the other, after the other, after the other, after the other. Like pounding a nail with a hammer, one after the other. It wasn't like this, drawn It just kept getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And that brings us up to where we are today in chapter 16, verse 12. It says this in the first couple of verses. And the sixth angel poured out his bowl upon the great river, the Euphrates. And his water was dried up that the way might be prepared for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, Satan, and out of the mouth of the beast, the Antichrist, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, the religious power, three unclean spirits that look like frogs, for they are spirits of demons performing signs, which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God Almighty. All this is happening as judgment and, and punishment, and at the same time, it's putting things in order. All of Revelation is putting things in order for the return of Jesus Christ. We need to remember that. All this is taking place. It's preparation for the return of Christ. And he pours it out on the river Euphrates. I have a slide up there that you may or may not be able to see very well of the river Euphrates. That's where I drew the red line along it. And I only put that up there to show us because... The Euphrates historically has been kind of like a border separating the west from the east. And even the fact that he dried up the river Euphrates, you may think, gee, he dried up a water supply. No, he was preparing the way that the nations from the east, there's some big nations to the east, kind of like China and others, so that they can come in this border, this natural boundary, this natural border that would prohibit armies from crossing. Not anymore. It's dried right up. March right across. And then it says that he, he, he did this to allow them to come because it seems like one of the things that's very obvious, God's final judgment is going to take place in Palestine, is what it was called then. We could or say the land of God's chosen people. He's going to bring them all here to their land. And that's where the final victory is going to take place. And it's interesting that these demons that it says they look like frogs somehow that went out, 
Satan is using signs and miracles and God's letting them use them to, to draw the kings to come, bring their armies to come, thinking, again, victorious somehow. And the reality is, we have seen in Revelation earlier where it says this about Satan, the dragon. He knew his time was short. He might have thought he was winning on the cross. He knows he's not going to win this battle, but he's not going to give up. He's not going to quit. He's still going to try to lie and deceive and steal, kill and destroy. That's his goal. And the whole time, God is using Satan. He's using the Antichrist. He's using the false prophet to accomplish his purposes. Nothing they do surprises him. He knows the thoughts. He knows the thoughts of Satan. He knows the thoughts of man. He's ahead of them all the time. Preparing the way for Jesus' return. And he gathers them together in a place called, in the the Bible, depending on your translation, it might say Har Megiddo, H-A-R. Go ahead and put that slide up. Har Megiddo. And this interesting place, it says they're going to gather these people, these armies together. And he doesn't give us specific details a lot of times, but some of these, I think, to me, I just wanted to show them because these are real places. Har Megiddo. The reason it looked like it's a hill, that's the city of Megiddo. And over the centuries and centuries, they just build the city on top of the city, on top of the city. It would be destroyed, buildings would fall. So over hundreds and hundreds of years, they call them tells, T-E-L. It becomes this hill that's not really a hill, it's just a city. And this is actually Megiddo, and it's actually being archaeologically studied and uncovered. And it exists, and it says it's going to be a Harmageddon, and it says, in the, it doesn't say it here, but it says in Ezekiel and other places, in the Valley of Jezreel. Put the next one up. There's a picture of the area. There's Megiddo, the city of Megiddo. Look at the valley, the Jezreel Valley, this big area. It has been an area historically where wars have been fought from biblical times. If you read through the Old Testament, you will read the battles that took place in this Jezreel Valley. And it's been talked about even up into more contemporary or modern history. Napoleon even made reference to that valley, making some comment that was something like, man, the, the, the armies of the world could gather here for a fight. And Jesus is giving this vision to John on an island over 2,000 years ago. Real places. It's really going to happen. It's not science fiction. There's going to be a war. And in Ezekiel, especially chapters 38 and 39, I'm going to just read some of this off real quickly. People debate some of these, but it gives us these in in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Who's going to fight the war? Who's going to be there? I'll just rattle off a list of what most believe. The king of the north and his allies. Who's the king of the north and his allies? Russia, modern Iraq, Ethiopia, uh, maybe Arabia, the Sudan. Put is Libya and the African bloc. Gomer is Germany. Beth Togamarth is Turkey. That's all the king of the north coming. Go back to the two slides back and kind of get a picture of some of those cities. One more back. There you go. You can kind of see some of these countries. The north and their allies. Then it says the king of the south. The king of the south will consist primarily of Egypt and most of the Arab states. The king of the west, this will be the new ten-nation confederation of the ancient Roman Empire, kind of up there in the, in the southern part of Europe. They're going to be coming. 
And then finally, the kings of the east. And this is those that are going to come through the, through the Euphrates River, the Oriental nations, and a lot of the um, remainder of what we would call the Middle East. It's going to be like this world war thing coming together, all being manipulated, orchestrated by Almighty God. The battle that's referred to as the battle in the great day of God the Almighty. Continuing on in verse 15. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his garments, lest he walk about naked and men see his shame. You've got to hope there's some symbolism there, don't you? And then they gathered them together in the place in which in Hebrew is called Armageddon. And I've already talked about that. I want to mention a little bit about that verse 15. In that verse, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blesses the one who stays awake and keeps his garments, lest he be walking around naked and in shame. There's, a, there's an assurance in there, and there's a strong encouragement or exhortation in that verse. First of all, he says, Behold, pay attention, write this down. Take note of this. Look, see, I am coming back. I'm coming back. It's going to happen. Never have to doubt it. I am coming back. And the exhortation there is weird. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his garments, lest he walk about naked and men see his shame. I'm going to offer this up because there's disagreement. But a lot of the theologians think what the garments are symbolic of are the the righteous behavior or the good works or the godlike lifestyle. Remember when this exhortation is taking place in the worst part of tribulation. And he's reminding those that have accepted Christ, pay attention, I'm coming back. And then he says this, keep your garments on. You know, right now, every one of us have an internal righteousness of Christ that's been given to us through Christ. But we could line up four believers and four unbelievers and we'd say, which ones have the righteousness of Christ? And if you've never seen him before, you've never been around him, you wouldn't know. Because that righteousness of Christ that's in us, that's been imputed to us, is not visible to the world around us unless we live a life demonstrating the righteousness of Christ. So here, even in the midst of the, the most horrible time in the tribulation, he's encouraging the saints that believe, I'm coming back and, and keep living a lifestyle of holiness, of righteousness, allowing the fruit of the Spirit, allow, allowing the good works to come forth so that when people see you, they don't see a man who's naked and not has any good works and is nothing but a shame. They see someone walking in righteousness and Christ-likeness. In the middle of tribulation, he's telling them this. We have similar exhortations from God for us today. Remember at that time, if they didn't have the mark of the beast on their forehead or on their hand, if they confessed Christ, if they did not bow down to the Antichrist, if they didn't worship the image of the Antichrist, they were killed. That's the kind of persecution they faced. 
And yet Jesus is saying, God is saying through this vision, demonstrate. Show them. I've said this before and you've heard this line I'm sure many times by other people. If you were convicted of being a Christian, would there be enough, if you were charged with being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? That should be a convicting thought. Do I look different enough from the world that I, they'd say, yes, guilty, he's a Christian? Does my lifestyle demonstrate the life of Christ living in me to the world around me? Or do I look just like the world? Do I do what they do, go where they go, talk like they talk, participate in the things they participate in, or am I different? And do I stand for righteousness? Do I live and walk and live a lifestyle where the fruit of the Holy Spirit is manifested? Or do I just look like the rest of Romans chapter 13. Paul writing this to the Roman church. So he's writing this to the church. He's writing it to us as the church. He writes these words. This is all the more urgent for you know how late it is. Time is running out. It's been 2,000 years and he was worried that time was running out. We ought to be really concerned that time is running out. And he says these words, Wake up! For our salvation is nearer now than it was when we first believed. The night is almost gone. The day of salvation will soon be here. So remove your dark deeds like dirty clothes. And put on the shining armor of right living. Because we belong to the day, we must live decent lives for all to see. Don't participate in the darkness of wild parties, drunkenness, sexual promiscuity, immoral living, quarreling, or jealousy. Instead, clothe yourself with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and don't let yourself think about ways to indulge your evil desires. Boy, there's a challenge thrown down by God. For us to live in a way that sets us apart from the world. You know, we're either living the ways of the world or we're living the ways of God. Bible's clear. We are not citizens. This is not our home here on this earth. Our home and our citizenship is in heaven. We are no longer that old creation. We are new creatures in Christ. Old things passed away, all things are new. Don't look like that. Take off the clothes of darkness and put on the shining armor of the light of Christ. You know, it's a big command and we all blow it. We all blow it. But are we trying? Are we making an effort? We have the Holy Spirit of God living in us. And one of the primary, if not the primary purpose of the Holy Spirit living in us is to demonstrate Christ to the world. The Holy Spirit always wants to put the attention on Jesus, not on us. And He wants us to live, and He'll help us to live. He'll empower us to live. He'll give us revelation. He'll, give us, he'll convict us if we're sliding into the deceptions of the world. He will do all these things to help us if we listen. And we're living in a day and age where there still is not very much persecution in our own country. But this is the same exhortation that God has given His people in the final days of tribulation. If them, how much more should we be living and demonstrating the life of Christ? 
the seventh bowl. Starting in verse 17. And the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. If you remember, we read that the veil of the temple was torn at the cross when Jesus died and paid the price so we could come into the temple, into the presence of God. But here in Revelation it says that the temple, the wrath of God was being poured out of the temple so that no one could enter. And now it's going to say this is the seventh bowl, this is it. It's done. Everything that needs to be accomplished for the return of my son Jesus is going to be done and completed. And it says there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there was a great earthquake. You know, we have alarm systems in place. There's a tornado, the sirens sound, and we're supposed to all take cover. If you were living in this time of tribulation, when the lightning starts flashing and the thunder starts peeling, you probably better duck. Because we see over and over, it's like a warning system and a preparation that God's judgment is coming again. And it says that there was a great earthquake. Listen how it's described in the New American translation. A great earthquake such as there had never been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. And the great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And every island, every island fled away, gone. And the mountains were not to be found. They're gone. And if it's not bad enough, huge hailstones, somewhere around 100 to 130 pounds, huge hailstones, 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. When this bowl is poured out, it's more like a series of judgments, one right after the other, right after the other. John hears the voice of God, as it said, from the Holy of Holies in the temple in heaven. And he's speaking these words, it is done. John, by this time, must have said, praise the Lord. It's about to end. It's almost over. The wine of God's wrath, the cup of his wrath, those that attend here regularly know we've talked about in the past when Jesus went to the cross. Before he got to the cross, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he prayed, Father, if it be possible, let this cup be removed from me. I believe he was talking about the wrath of God that was going to come on him in judgment for our sin. The wrath of God being poured out on him for us. And here it's telling us that Babylon, whether it's an ancient city being restored, whether it's Rome, whether it's Jerusalem, whether it's the whole political and religious system of the day, people debate and argue about, it really doesn't matter because the wrath of God is going to be poured out upon them and it's going to be undiluted, meaning no mercy. No mercy. The earthquake comes, splits the great city, the cities of the nations, the Gentile nations, they all are crumbled and fall apart and Babylon the Great is remembered before God to give her the cup of his fierce wrath. You may remember before Saddam Hussein was captured and all that took place. How many of you know that he was trying to rebuild ancient Babylon? 
Did you know that? It looks ridiculous the way he built it, but he was believing to rebuild ancient Babylon. And there's buildings and temples there, mostly his temples and his buildings, his fancy castles, so to speak. Could be that, ancient Babylon. As I said, it could be the system. It could be Jerusalem. They can't agree. But whatever it is, God's wrath is going to be poured out. And then this earthquake. Can you imagine the destruction when the topography of the earth is completely changed? Every island is gone. Every mountain is gone. Can you imagine, just from the, the tsunamis from the island, can you imagine the death and the destruction taking place? And this, this is worldwide. And then if that isn't enough, 100-pound hailstones from heaven fall to the earth. And God's finally saying it is done. Judgment is completed. And there's one thing that I think you you can miss it if you don't read it carefully, but it says in multiple times, and they did not repent. And they did not repent. And even worse, they blasphemed God and did not repent. Now, if if God is saying they did not repent, to me it implies they could have. But they didn't. And we we could say they didn't believe there was a God, but they blasphemed God. They were blaming God. They They were acknowledging that He exists and He's pounding them with these plagues and all of these things. But they did not repent. A hardened heart is a scary thing. A hardened heart has eternal consequences. I personally believe our heart can get a little bit harder every time it rejects Christ. Every time we hear the gospel message, we hear it and we reject it. I think it gets a little harder. It gets a little harder. I think every time when the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin so we know doggone well what we're doing is sinful and we ignore it and reject it, our heart can get a little harder and get a little harder. Praise God, until our heart is so hardened that we cannot repent, we can repent and be forgiven. That's why Jesus died on the cross. That's why no matter how many times you've heard the Gospel message and rejected it, if you're hearing it again and something's in you saying, I need to accept it, God's grace is there, accept it. If the Holy Spirit is convicting you of something in your life or in my life that is sin, but we kind of like it, We kind of want to keep a hold of it. It's not that bad. We need to be quick to confess it as sin. Repent. Walk away from that. That scripture in Romans that I read earlier, boy, oh boy, it gives me plenty of opportunities to confess and walk away, turn away from that kind of sin. A hardened heart. Fortunately, we don't know when a heart becomes too hardened. Only God does. But I always tell people, I know there's been some that I've met with that thinks their heart is too hardened. And I said, as long as you're still convicted, as long as there's something in you saying, I need to repent or confess this, your heart's not too hardened. But there will be a day. So if the Lord is wooing you by His Spirit to accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, today's the day to do it. 
Acknowledge the sin in our life. Accept the sacrifice of Jesus for us. Surrender our life to Him. Let the Holy Spirit move in and live in us and lead us into the abundant life that Christ died for. If He's putting His finger on some sin in your life, and and most of us, if we know anything about the Bible, we kind of know what sin is and what it isn't. But sometimes we ignore it because our flesh likes it. That's the danger of sin. Most of the time, it's something that our flesh enjoys. I need to do this because my flesh will feel good. It usually lasts about that long. And the consequences can last forever. We need to confess and repent. God continually reminds us throughout Scripture to guard our hearts. Be watchful. Do not allow your heart to become hardened. In Hebrews chapter 3, you could read there a few different places, but he says, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from God. That's a hardened heart. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as our ancestors did in the wilderness. They hardened their hearts and walked around in the desert for 40 years and died there. I don't want to stay in the desert even a year. and I certainly don't want to die there. We need to confess. Revelation is relevant for our lives today, believe it or not. It's not just science fiction. It's not just a predictor of the future, which it truly is. But it's relevant today. Our lives, do they represent the image of Christ? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you again and again and again for the truth of your word. Father, I thank you that you are a loving and compassionate God, but I acknowledge that you are a just God. Father, I thank you for your grace and mercy which you extend to us. Your God says your grace is sufficient and your mercies are new every day. God, I thank you. We need your grace. We need your mercy. Father, I pray that anyone here who has never accepted you as their Lord and Savior would do that today. They would receive the grace that you freely offer. And Lord, I pray you would grant each one of us repentance in those areas that your Holy Spirit reveals to us. Father, I thank you and pray that as we continue to study this book, your word, it stirs in each one of us more of an evangelistic heart to share the good news of the gospel that no one that we would know or love or come in contact with would ever have the possibility of having to live at this kind of torment which is just a taste of eternity in hell we thank you this morning for the cross of Calvary the blood of Jesus and this body that was offered up for us We pray, God, that we would glorify you. I pray now, Lord, as we go our separate ways this morning, that we would go, that you would be going before us by your Spirit, that you would give us grace to lead, to follow your Holy Spirit's leading. I pray you would watch over us and protect us. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.